Hey friends, this is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. Uh, today we're going to be hearing from Eric Hovind of Creation Today. That's right, Eric Hovind, son of Dr. Kent Hovind. Uh, Eric Hovind is the president and founder of Creation Today, the website creationtoday.org. Uh, Eric Hovind has his hands in so many different things creation-related. Uh, he's got over 108 podcasts. They're, they're more like vodcasts, video podcasts. Uh, on, on, uh, well, you can find it on iTunes. You can also find it on his website, creationtoday.org. Amazing stuff. Really good quality, well-produced stuff. Uh, great content. Uh, he started the podcast with Paul Taylor. Now, Paul Taylor has been on the podcast a couple times now. Uh, Eric, uh, I'm hoping will be no stranger to this podcast now as well. Uh, he's got an amazing ministry. He's taken part or helped uh, his ministry, has helped in translating Creation Today materials into over 42 different languages. Yeah, just an amazing ministry, an amazing guy. Um, I'm really excited to have him on. Eric, welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Hey, Michael. Great to be with you today. Thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. It is an honor to have you on. Uh, so uh, really quick, tell me, listeners, about Creation Today, because what you're doing with that ministry uh, it really has affected me um, in this ministry. And I just want to share with my listeners you know, what you're doing. Wow. Well, praise God for that, and we pray that that, uh, that's exactly what you're doing to others, is equipping them, which is what Creation Today wants to do. We want to equip the believer to influence eternity, and we do that by giving them the information, the ammunition, I guess you could say, they need in order to answer the modern questions, the questions people are asking today about apologetics. So we do a lot of Bible training and a lot of apologetics, uh, specifically a lot in the area of creation versus evolution. Uh, Seems to be one of the very first stumbling blocks that people come to on their journey to faith is, hey, well, wait a minute, I learned in school millions of years, or I learned in school dinosaurs never lived with man and they died 65 million years ago, or I, I learned in school the earth is, you know, 4.6 billion years old today, tomorrow it'll be a little bit older, but uh, I, I learned all this <laughs> stuff in school. How do, I, how do I wrestle with that and try to fit that into the Bible says God created everything, and God says that he, he made everything and you know, made man in his image that were not evolved from a monkey, and, and that dinosaurs apparently were made on day six of creation with mankind, and, and the earth, according to the Bible, is only 6,000 years old. How do I, how do I fit these together? What, what, what goes on here? So really helping bring the uh, unbeliever to a knowledge of the truth where they can say, look, God's word is what I need to trust, and we can just keep them uh, understanding and knowing that. Because, uh, man, as soon as you get over that hurdle, soon, as soon as you can understand and can accept, in the beginning, God, the rest of the Bible is really easy after that. <laughs> now, yeah. when it comes to the resurrection or the virgin birth or things like that, I, now it's okay. Hey, if God made everything in the beginning, he can do that. I mean, if we can just get over in the beginning, God, and get people to understand that, man, the gospel message has a clear path to the person's heart. Amen. And uh, friends, Eric Hoven also has a, a video podcast. What do you call that? A vodcast? Yeah, it's, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. 
And uh, it's it's Creation Today. You can find it on iTunes. You can also find it on his website, Creation Today. Uh, dot it is dot com, correct? Actually, we're dot org. Somebody already had oh. the dot com, and they don't want to sell it for less than about twenty million dollars. So we oh, figured the dot org would be fine. <laughs> okay, and uh, yeah, their Creation Today uh, vodcast, the video podcast, is amazing. It is quality, and uh, you guys really need to check that out. Um, you're starting your fourth season? That's right, yeah. Up here? Season four starts very soon, so uh, you can check it out at creationtoday.org. In the meantime, we've got, man, 108 episodes that are in the can, ready to be listening to, listened to while you stock those shelves with root beer or Pepsi or whatever you're sitting there stocking the shelves. I, I talked to a guy the other day who's a truck driver, and or he, he works for Pepsi, I believe, and he said, man, I just listen to these podcasts all day long, man. Just load my phone up, and it's just go, 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 one after another. I was like, dude, I'm jealous. <laughs> I want that job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can I can relate to that. Uh, there's a lot of times when I spend a lot of time uh, on the job listening to podcasts because I, I can, because I've been doing this stuff for so long. But, uh, yeah, it is a blessing. It is a tremendous blessing. In fact, that blessing has allowed me to pour back out with this ministry. So, yeah, praise God for for iPods and MP3s, (laughs) right? Amen. (laughs) So your ministry mainly focused, uh, but not primarily, but mainly focused on creationism. Um, Let's talk about some creationism. Uh, Today I want to talk about uh, the the evidence for a young earth. First of all, what does the Bible say about the age of the earth? Does the Bible say a young earth or an old earth, and why? Oh, man, you're getting into a very controversial subject. Now, to me, I think I do have the proper perspective on it. I mean, I studied this, and, of course, a lot of guys would say that. But i got to tell you, I, I was just talking to a guy this morning who's in the uh, in the Air Force, and he has an apologetics ministry and teaches on it. And he came in here to the Creation Store in Pensacola, Florida, and I'm showing him around and showing him the evidence of the age of the earth, and he goes, yeah, I'm kind of more of an old earth guy. And I went, hey, that's fine. You know, you're welcome to be wrong. Uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say that to him. But I said, well, tell me why you think it's old. He said, well, just it seems to me like some of the arguments for a young earth don't include all the different, you know, variables that really come into it. You know, for example, the sun and how old the sun or how big the sun would have been when it was younger and it would have been much denser. And I said, yeah, but... To me, the problem is both scientific and theological uh, with having an old earth versus a young earth. So real simple, though, if you take the Bible as the authority, you're not going to come up with millions of years. And the reason I know that is because historically, people thought the earth was only a few thousand years old. Nobody thought the earth was millions of years old or billions of years old, not up until like 1795 when a guy named James Hutton wrote a book called Theory of the Earth. And I say, I mean, there may have been people that thought it was older than that, but it really wasn't a popular idea, not something that people were really thinking about until the last couple hundred years. So James Hutton's book, Theory of the Earth, said maybe the earth is a lot older than people thought. But historically, according to the Bible, it's only a few thousand, and we can get those dates or get that date 
by actually looking at those genealogies. It's God's cure for insomnia right there in the Bible. If you can't fall asleep, open it up, read the genealogies. So-and-so, when he was this old, begat so-and-so. And so-and-so, when he was this old, begat so-and-so. And so-and-so, when he was this old. Let me tell you, man, you'll be out in no time at all. But if you can stay awake and study that, the Bible says Adam was 130 when he had Seth. Seth was 105 when he had Enos. Enos was 90 when he had Canaan. And we've actually graphed this out on our longevity chart. You can find that on our website if you want to look at it. The longevity chart actually graphs out how old these people were before and after the flood. And we can see that when you add up the dates in the Bible from Adam all the way to Abraham, all the way to David, all the way to Christ, and now after Christ here about 2,000 years, we've got about 4,000 years before Christ, and now about 2,000 after Christ. So you get an approximate age of about 6,000 years old for the age of the earth, according to the genealogies in the Scripture. So that's one great way to see exactly how old the earth is, according to the Bible. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, longevity uh, chart right now. Um, I, I covered that in a podcast, and now I can't remember which one it was, but I know I talked about that. And yeah, um, <clears throat> if you look, just a straightforward reading of the Bible does show that the earth is young, that, that Adam can be traced back um, just by exactly how you said, it'll say, Adam was X amount of years old when he begot, and then the next person when he begot, and it just goes on and on, uh, and you can actually chart it out. Yeah. And so what do you say to people that say that there are some missing generations? Well, I say <laughs> it's, it's hard to point that out from the Bible, and that is one of the arguments there is that, well, maybe the Bible doesn't record everything in there. And I go, man, well, when it says this person begat, they're saying, yeah, yeah, but it could have been begat after a long, it could have been, you know, Adam's, Adam had Seth, but maybe Adam had this son and this son and this son and this son, and then that son had Seth. So technically Adam had Seth, but there's a lot of generations missing there. I say, first of all, uh, I, I wonder why we would say that. I wonder why we would question that. The only reason to add time to the Bible, the only reason, is to try to get the Bible to fit with this new idea that the earth is millions of years old. So why would I compromise a, a book, the Bible, that's never been proven wrong with this relatively new scientific idea that the earth is millions of years old, which has never been proven right? And we can go into the, some of the scientific evidences that they try to use to prove that it's old. The, the real problem comes in this. Um, I, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead or not here, but the real problem comes down to the young dates, the, these young ones, scientifically and theologically in the Bible, they're the problem factor for the old earth view. It'd be kind of like if we went scuba diving and found a treasure chest full of gold coins, and I said, hey, when did the boat that was holding this treasure chest, when did this boat sink? Well, if I find a coin in there that is 500 years old, I now know the boat sank within the last 500 years. If I find another coin in there that's only 100 years old, now I've got another limiting factor, and I know the boat had to sink within the last 100 years. So I've taken it down from 500 down to 100 now. If I find another coin in there that's only 70 years old, now I know the boat had to sink within the last 70 years. So it puts a limiting factor on when that boat sank. 
And you can apply the same logic to the age of the universe or the age of the Earth. If I find some evidence out there that shows the Earth formed or the universe was formed billions of years ago, that's, that's great. Okay, we've looked at some scientific evidence. But if I find more evidence that limits it down to 20,000 years ago, well, now I've got a limiting factor. For example, the Earth's magnetic field is getting weaker. It's declined by about a, uh, 7% in the last 150 years. Well, if that is, it, it, since that's the case, scientifically, we can go backwards and say it would be impossible for the Earth to exist or, or for life to exist on Earth with a magnetic field stronger than a certain level because of the amount of heat that would be trapped on the Earth. And scientists have looked at that and they've said, look, really, you can't go back but about 25,000 years on the age of the Earth with the magnetic field getting stronger and stronger because then you're going to have a real problem for life on Earth. So we find these limiting factors, and that's just one example, that show, hey, as we apply this logic, the old dates are not the ones that we need to worry about. It's all these dates that are coming back showing that it's young. Those are the ones that we really need to consider. Because you've got to remember, the Bible says the earth was formed, and when it was formed, it was made to be inhabited. It was formed with the appearance of age. There were full-grown trees in the garden. Adam and Eve, on day number one, uh, after they were created, could go pick fruit off of the trees and eat it. Those he didn't, God didn't make two babies, put them in a garden, give them a shovel and some seeds and say, hey, uh, if I were you, I'd plant these. You're going you're gonna to want to eat pretty soon. No, <laughs> he made a fully functioning universe, so it had the appearance of age. Adam, of course, was the perfect age, 37 years old, <clears throat> what I think is perfect right now anyway, uh, and uh, he, he, was, uh, he, he wasn't more than a day old, and he, he had the appearance of age. So I don't know if I jumped ahead of our conversation there, but um, that's where I think the, the debate really lies is, hang on, what about all these dates that are young that become the limiting factor? Well, amen. Yeah. What about what about other limiting factors? Because there are so many of them out there. Yeah, there are. You know, I think of one of my favorite ones to share, uh, and this doesn't necessarily hit the age of the earth uh, as much as it hits the, um, you know, when the flood occurred. But I think it's a great one nonetheless. You look at the human population today at seven point. What are we at? About one. Five billion. If you look on the human popu yeah. world population uh, uh, indicator, I think we are somewhere around seven billion. I think yeah, and we're over seven. It's like seven point one five or seven point one four, somewhere right around there right now. But you look at that, and you actually you can actually trace back about when the human population started using population growth calculators. And what's interesting is when you include famine and disease and, and technology and survival rate and things like that, when you trace the human population of 7.15 billion people backwards, it only goes back about 4,400 years. Hmm. Well, I, that is kind of interesting. <laughs> I go, well, wait a minute here. Uh, how come we don't have a lot more people on the planet? I actually, I posed that question to Bill Nye, the science guy. He was speaking at uh, the University of uh, Florida. And I went down there, and I got the last ticket to get into the event. So I think it was a divine appointment. God wanted me to be there. And then during the question-answer time, right before he was done speaking, I saw the guy that had the microphone. 
that was going to be letting people use that microphone to ask questions. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to stand right next to him. Sure enough, I got to ask one of the very first questions to Bill Nye. And I said, hey, I got a question. You in your talk said that in 1963, we crossed the 5 billion mark in people on the planet. And then, you know, we watched it across 6 billion and now over 7 billion. I said, if we trace the human population backwards, about how far back does it go? When did it start? And you could tell right away he knew this was a question that caused a problem for the evolution worldview. He goes, uh, you know, well, about um, maybe 100,000 years. I said, I do have a question. And now it won't go back 100,000 years, but I left that alone. And I said, how come if people have been here for 3 million years, according to evolution, about 3.5 million, well, then how come we don't have more people or even more evidence of those people, like the bones that are left over? And instead of answering the question, he said, are you a creationist? <laughs> oh, come on. I said, yes, I am. And the whole audience laughed at me and they mocked me. Mm. And I said, I said, uh, well, I, it's a, it's a legitimate question. And instead of answering, he just kind of, kind of fluffed it off. Actually, you can read the blog and watch the video of it on our website at creationtoday.org. And he, he, um, he just kind of fluffed it off and said, uh, well, I think there's too much, uh, too much science that you've ignored already and just kind of left it at that. And so I was kind of frustrated because this does bring up a valid issue. If man has been here for three and a half million years, where's the evidence of it? I've got a limiting factor that brings it down to about 4,400. And, of course, the Bible says 4,400 years ago is when the flood of Noah occurred. So if Noah's flood occurred 4,400 years ago and there were eight people that survived – Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, well, then there should be about 7 billion people on the planet. And that's exactly what we've got today. The science fits with the Scripture. So I realize that one doesn't get us back to the 6,000-year number. However, it does give us some great evidence that God's Word is true. And if it's true about the flood, I'd say it's true about those genealogies in there as well. So that's just another good one. Yeah, that is a good one. Uh, what about the uh, uh, recent discovery, uh, yet again, of, of soft dinosaur tissue? I love that one. So it's kind of funny because uh, just literally in the late 90s, early 2000s, they began realizing that dinosaurs had soft tissue inside and that it was all started from an accident. Somebody accidentally broke a T-Rex thigh bone open and they thought, well, since it's broken open, they don't normally cut into these. They preserve them. Since it's broken open, let's go ahead and, um, and you know, examine it. Well, when they were looking at it, they discovered um, when they put some fluids in there to try to, you know, create some certain chemical reactions, they discovered there was still soft tissue in the dinosaur bone. And this kind of took everybody by surprise. They're going, no way. How in the world is there soft tissue in dinosaur bones? Now, you can come to two conclusions based on the soft tissue. Either we need to add, or we either need to conclude um, that a the dinosaurs did not live millions of years ago because it's impossible for that soft tissue to last for millions of years, or b our entire understanding of how fossilization takes place is wrong and we need to rethink that. Well, in the secular community, they could never they could never question how old those bones are. 
That is not even remotely possible. That's all fit. It fits into their geologic column. They've got the whole circular reasoning going on. They've got their age for the geologic column, so therefore they've got their age for their dinosaur bones, so therefore they've got their age for this. And it's all a big circular reasoning thing, but they don't want to mess that up. So they, instead of saying, when did these bones fossilize, they questioned how they fossilized. And they went for, for the next 10 years, they went on a journey. How can things not fossilize for millions of years? And their conclusion, ah, it must have had a lot of iron in the, uh, in the soil around it because it takes longer for things to fossilize if there's iron around it. And that's their conclusion. They never question how old those bones were. They were offered, uh, you're out there in Colorado. Um, I forget the guy's name. Do you remember the guy's name who was, is a radio host out there? Bob. Uh, Anyway, he called um, the guy that actually found it, uh, Mary Schweitzer, and um, I'm blanking on his name, but called the guy that found it, offered them $25,000 if they would carbon date that T-Rex bone, and he refused. He said, no, I'm not going to carbon date my T-Rex leg, leg bone. They said, why not? He said, we don't need to. There's not going to be any carbon in it. There can't be any carbon in it. It's too old. You can't have radioactive carbon in this. So here we see where his worldview, his evolution theory, actually interrupted him doing real science. He refused to do the science on the carbon dating because, honestly, I think it's because he knew there was radioactive carbon inside his dinosaur leg bone. Matter of fact, didn't I just see, literally last week, I think I saw a news article where they are now radiocarbon dating uh, a T-Rex bone at, or a, um, uh, a dinosaur bone and finding radioactive carbon in it, which indicates it cannot be. There's no way it's millions of years old. It has to be less than 100,000 years old on their current dating, the way they're currently doing it. But I don't have that off the top of my head here. But anyway, so. Yeah, yeah. I, I know uh, uh, C14 is actually an evidence for a young Earth as well. Yeah. Uh, um, it, it, it has like a half-life. Oh, boy, here we go. I'm going to be pulling this one out of nowhere. I, I think it's, what, 5,730 or something like that? You hit the nail on the head, man. You got oh, it. All right. Lucky Good guess, job. just like evolution, man. Good job. That's right. I, that, that just happened by chance. Um, and, uh, right, so the half-life being 5,730 years, um, there can only be so much time that goes by before you have nothing to measure. Correct. And I, I forget what that is. I think it's something like 30,000 years. Yep, that's right. And so why do we find carbon in any of the bones? Yeah, exactly. If, if it's really millions of years old. So that, once again, that's, that's an evidence for young Earth. Isn't there also uh, just the amount of carbon, uh, C14, in the atmosphere also an argument for young Earth or, or a limiting factor, as you were saying? Yeah, it really is. Uh, here's kind of what they did. Uh, radioactive carbon is being formed in the upper atmosphere consistently. So the, the sun's, um, uh, the solar, you know, rays from the sun are coming in and they're actually kicking electrons off of or, or, or you know, bouncing them onto these carbon atoms up in the upper atmosphere and they're creating carbon-14, uh, radioactive carbon. Well, over a certain amount of time, that radiocarbon decays. It loses that extra element. It goes back to C13 and then C12, which is normal, radio, uh, normal carbon, carbon-12. Well, every 5,730 years, as you said, half of the radioactive carbon in the world will decay back into regular carbon. So 
if we didn't consistently have uh, have it being made in the upper atmosphere, then in 5,730 years, half of it would be gone. In 10,000, you know, some odd years, uh, another half would be gone. You'd only have a quarter left. Literally, within a very short amount of time, you'd have no radioactive carbon in the Earth's atmosphere. But it is being formed up there consistently. So you've got the rate that it's being formed and the rate that it's decaying. And they said it would take Earth's atmosphere 30,000 years to reach equilibrium. That's the point where the amount being formed in the upper atmosphere and the amount decaying have equaled out. They've equalized. Kind of like if we had a 55-gallon um, a drum, and I told you I want you to fill this drum up with water, but the drum had holes all the way up the side. I hand you a hose. I turn it on full blast. It's going as fast as it can, and you start filling up this drum. Eventually, it starts leaking out hole number one. It goes up at a slower rate to hole number two, and it starts leaking out hole number two. Well, at some point, you're finally going to re reach what's called equilibrium, where the amount going out of those holes and the amount going in with your hose is the exact same. Well, scientists have studied the atmosphere. They said it would take 30,000 years to reach equilibrium, where the amount being formed and the amount decaying is exactly the same. And they assumed, foolishly, oh, well, the Earth is millions of years old, so we know the Earth's atmosphere has already reached equilibrium. Well, this is a problem. This is an assumption, and it can radically throw off the ages of things. If a thousand years ago the Earth is not at equilibrium, then you have less carbon-14 in the atmosphere, therefore less carbon-14 in the animals and in the plants. So when you, radio, uh, when, when you date something using carbon-14, it's going to look older than it actually was. And that's exactly what we see. They're getting these deep dates with carbon-14 because it's, it's a wrong assumption. They assumed the atmosphere was at equilibrium, and they've discovered now that it's not. We haven't even reached equilibrium yet. There's more being formed than there is decaying. So therefore, it seems pretty obvious to me, we ought to say, well, we know the universe is less than 30,000 years old because it hasn't even reached equilibrium. Yet again, another scientific example that the Earth is not millions or billions of years old. It simply cannot be. It's only a few thousand years old, just like the Bible teaches us. Right. Amen. Yeah. And, and in fact, speaking of assumptions and dating, there's a lot of assumptions that go into the different uh, styles of, of dating, radiometric dating that they use, the um, did you want to comment to that effect? Yeah, all the assumptions that they assume that the rate of decay is consistent. Now, I got to say, this has been studied in the lab, and I get it, and I would say they're probably somewhat accurate. However, the half-life of radioactive carbon is 5,730 years. If you look at some of the other dating methods like uranium lead or potassium 208 or uh, argon, they they actually have a real long half-life. So their half-life is millions or billions of years. I go, okay. I get the science. I get you can measure that really good. But to be able to say that it's that old based on us observing it for just a few years in the lab, I think you're stretching it. Or I think you could very easily interject error there, and we need to keep that into account. Another thing, you're assuming when you uh, do any kind of radiometric dating, you're assuming you know how much of that element, that radioactive element, was in the specimen to begin with. So if you assume right. it had a certain amount, well, you have to put that assumption into your thinking, into your calculations. So now we have two different assumptions that go into it that could throw off the dating method. 
and give, giving us an accurate result. Uh, here, here's here's kind of what I've noticed. Um, whenever we know how old something is, because they've dated things where they know they saw it live, they, they know how old it is, it doesn't seem that carbon dating works very well at all. We get radically wild dates when we radioactive uh, when we radiometric date something that is of a known age then when we radiometric date something that is an that is of an unknown age they just assume that it really does work <laughs> and i go guys <laughs> come on you need to think about this so uh the yeah the dating method while very cool and very scientific is also uh has a lot of assumptions and has been very very wrong so not a great way to show the Earth is billions of years old. Yeah, right. And what about leaching? Um, different, uh, like heat or water, can that affect also the dates that they're getting from these these uh, different rocks? It sure can. Now, what what they uh, I think a great one to show is diamonds because it'd be very difficult to leach anything out of the hardest mineral out there. But yeah, they've uh, the. Um, Institute for Creation Research, by the way, if you want to do more research on the radiometric dating, they did a project called the RATE Project, uh, Radioisotopes on the Age of the Earth, RATE, the RATE Project, uh, where they actually studied radiometric dating, and they studied it for years, and then wrote a whole essay on it, they a whole book on it, a whole thing on it, and they said, look, bottom line is, radiometric dating proves the Earth is young, not old. But yes, one of the things they point out is, under heat, under pressure, under uh, certain conditions, you can actually decay that element even faster than under normal conditions. So what, what have been the conditions of this thing throughout its you know, stint here on Earth, however long that is, and could, ha- could it have been exposed to different elements that actually caused those radio um, uh, isotopes to actually decay faster? Uh, and that's definitely a possibility that they have to take in and just assume that that has not happened. So I, I just, man, when it comes to the um, the carbon-14 or any of the dating methods, I say, hey, neat idea. It doesn't work. It doesn't yield accurate <laughs> results. Hey, here's another one that I find interesting. I mean, we're told all the time, one of the biggest, I'd say, I want to say problems, but it's not really a problem, is the starlight issue, because they'll bring that up. If I was an atheist, if I was an evolutionist, and I wanted to argue with the age of the Earth, the first thing I'd bring up is starlight. I'd be like, hang on, hang on, hang on. How can you have light from stars that are you know, billions of light years away? How did that reach the Earth? So that would be one of my biggest uh, oppositions to Christianity and to the Bible being true and to the Earth being 6,000 years old. I said, well, wait a minute. Think about it. Number one. Back in the early 1900s, when they were learning about all this stuff, they were learning about the stars um, and learning how far away they are. And, and they finally discovered, Hubble you know, was able to discover the red shift. They realized, look, all the light is moving away from the Earth. We see this red shift all over. The light wave is being stretched. And so we're seeing the longer of the wavelengths. We're seeing the red light, and that's the longer of the wavelengths, indicating that light is moving, the source of the light is moving away from the earth. Well, right before this, they had said, if it could ever be proven that the universe came into existence instantaneously, boom, just like that, that would prove the God of the Bible, and it would prove that his word is true when he said, in the beginning, God said. He spoke it into existence instantaneously. Well, then they discover the redshift, which indicates if things are moving apart, that means they used to be closer together. So they realize that at one point in time, everything was together, and it all started instantaneously from a single point. Well, rather than say, ah, we, our science has discovered the truth that God really did create the heavens and the earth, they said, 
well, maybe the universe made itself from nothing. And it started, <laughs> started from nothing. And I go, wow, here you have great science done by the most genius scientist in the world at that time, pointing to God's word being true, and they still can't accept that God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, just like he said. So that's kind of frustrating for me when I see that. Here's another thing with, um, with the stars that are out there, because they'll say all these stars formed over billions of years. You know, the stars are being made. Do you realize how many stars are out there in the universe? I mean, even with our estimates, obviously we, we can't count them. They try that someday. You'll stay busy. Uh, they current, the current estimate, uh, okay, podcast listeners, take a break, write this down, or if you're stocking the shelf, put 21 Coke cans in a row, okay? The number of stars they estimate in our universe is 70 sextillion. That's the number 70, seven zero, comma, and then 21 zeros behind it, zero, 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 comma, oh. zero, 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 comma, zero, zero, zero. Stack up that many Coke cans in a row or type that out on a, on a, uh, on a Word document real quick. 76 billion, that's how many stars they estimate are in the known universe. And by the way, Michael, those are only the ones that we know about. We don't even know about the ones that we don't know about yet. So <laughs> there's a lot of stars. Okay, now do some math. Underneath that, you've got to realize they say all those stars formed in 13.4 billion years. How do you get 76 billion stars to be formed in 13.4 in billion? Actually, 13.4 was last year. They changed it. 13.8 now. 13.8 billion years. Well, you start doing the math on that, you'll realize you would have to make stars at the rate of 165,000 per second for no. the entire 13.4 billion years straight in order to get that many stars. I go, man, we don't even see one star out there forming, let alone 165,000 per second. We're not seeing, we're not seeing what uh, science is telling us should, have, should be happening. It just oh, wow. it doesn't work. Wow. And how do these stars supposedly form? Well, I would say God is the one who formed the, uh, formed the stars. Uh, he says he, he made the stars also. I love that part in Genesis when it's like he threw it in. It seems like almost an afterthought, even though it wasn't. And he made the stars also. And it's like no big deal. And you're going, when you realize how many stars, you're going, what? He made the stars also. That's incredible. And, uh, you know, then in Isaiah chapter 40, when it says he calls all the stars by their name, I sit back and I go, that is the God that's worthy of worship. That is the God that's worthy of praise. That is the God that I want to love and adore and serve the rest of my life, whether I go to hell or not. He's worthy of my worship and my praise. He is worthy. And I just I stand back and I go, wow. So we've never seen a star form. Mm -hmm. All we've seen is stars blow up. Those are called novas or supernovas. And we see those about once every 30 years. But we don't ever see stars forming. So we see them blow up. We don't see them form. I, I had one guy, um, uh, actually, this has happened a couple times. They've uh, quoted a, I forget the, uh, the, the research journal that they quote, but they say, hey, it's been discovered that if you could get 20 stars in the same region to blow up next to each other, they would all produce enough energy to make a brand new star. <laughs> You're seeing the problem, aren't you? <laughs> you got to lose 20 in order to make one. 
Man, that's like the government trying to borrow money to get us out of debt. This is not going to work, okay? This you're going the wrong direction. You got to lose 20 to gain 1. Somebody help these people out for crying out loud. Oh. oh. So That's hilarious. Okay. Yet another one. Hey, I, right. another one that I think is good, the Sahara Desert is growing right now at the rate of about four miles per year. It gets a little bit bigger each year. And they're over there trying to fix this, trying to figure out what can we plant to stop this desertification, they call it, as the desert grows, and what can we do to stop this. But it's got this prevailing wind pattern that keeps the desert growing. Well, when you take the size of the desert and divide it by this uh, about four miles a year, you'll actually see that the Sahara Desert can only be about 4,400 years old. It cannot be older than that based on the current growth of the desert. Well, why only 4,400 years old? How come the Sahara Desert hasn't taken over all of Africa by now? Again, this fits with the young earth model. It doesn't fit with the old earth model. Here's another one. Oil under the ground is under tremendous pressure. I mean, when they drill down and they hit oil, man, you've got to have special valves to just keep that oil from just busting through everything. We're th- talking up to 20,000 pounds per square inch. You put that in your bike tire and you're going to have a problem. 20,000 <laughs> PSI. Well, when they study the rocks over top of the oil, they discover, well, these rocks can only handle that amount of pressure for up to a certain amount of time. Usually it's around 10,000 years or so. Well, then why do we still hit oil pockets that are under tremendous pressure? How come the rock above hasn't cracked? If the Earth is billions of years old and if that oil formed millions of years ago, according to the evolution worldview, it just doesn't fit. But it does fit with exactly what the Bible says, that 4,400 years ago there was a flood, And during the flood, I think a lot of plants and animals and people got buried and squished into oil. Of course, there's new uh, theories out there that say oil is still forming in the mantle. It's actually being formed continuously. I don't know uh, the latest in the last probably five or six years on that, but uh, there's been some new studies trying to to find out uh, if you go deep enough, do you hit an endless supply of oil? Is that possible? Hmm. If your listeners, I don't know if your listeners got to hear the Bill Nye versus Ken Ham debate. Fascinating yes. debate where uh, Bill Nye debated Ken Ham in, at the Answers in Genesis Creation Museum there in Kentucky. And I think Ken Ham did an incredible job of bringing in experts and scientists to say, I'm an expert and I don't believe in old earth. I don't believe in evolution. I believe God created it about 6,000 years ago. And then Bill Nye gets up and says, there's no experts that agree with you. <laughs> and I'm going, he just showed you their video. What are you talking about? Well, one of the things Bill Nye brought up was – that they can drill down in the ice up near uh, or down near Antarctica and other places and bring up these ice cores. And these ice cores show a, 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 an ice layer and then a snowpack layer, and then an ice layer and a snowpack layer, and an ice layer. So you've got all these layers to the ice where it's, it's clear, where it's an ice layer, and then it's obviously it's foggy, indicating snowpack, and then it goes back to ice, which is clear. He says these represent summer, winter, summer, winter, and we can go back over 100,000 years just for this ice accumulation at the, at the poles. Well, the problem is he's assuming that those layers, that the clear and then the pack, would be annual, a summer and then a winter, and then a summer and then a winter. So comes to find out that's not at all what those are. Those are just warm when it warms up above freezing, and it, and it, um, it creates a, a clear layer, and then it cools back off uh, to form a pack layer. 
uh, they, they found some planes up in Greenland called the Lost Squadron. And uh, a guy named Bob Carden, I believe it is, has one of these at his museum, the Lost Squadron airplane. He actually still takes it out and flies it around. It was a group of airplanes that were P-38 bombers. They were uh, trying to get back uh, across the ocean. They didn't have enough fuel, so they went back to Greenland and landed there in Greenland on top of the ice. Well, after they, uh, they came and rescued them and the plane sat there. Somebody thought, I got an idea. Let's go get those P-38s, fly them out of there, dust the, dust the snow off the wings, fill them up with gas, and fly them out. They, they get over there, and they can't find the planes. So they use ground-penetrating radar to locate them. They finally located them, and they were underneath, let's see here, uh, they were 263 feet below the surface. 263 feet of ice and snow had accumulated on top of these airplanes. And these airplanes, when they found them, they were not nose down or engine down. That would indicate that they actually sank through the ice. No, instead it shows that it was actually, they were flat, they were horizontal, indicating the ice uh, actually accumulated on top of them. So in 1990 is when they went over there and they dug these planes out. And I've actually got a picture. I'm looking at it right now. When they melted the ice 263 feet down to actually get to those airplanes, you can see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these layers that are clear and then solid, or uh, clear and then packed where they're uh, foggy and then clear and then foggy and then clear and foggy. You can see hundreds of these layers on top of the Lost Squadron. Now, those planes landed in 1942. So 1942 to 1990 is 48 years and they were 263 feet below the surface in 48 years. That means you have about five and a half feet of accumulation each year. Well, the furthest they've ever drilled down for ice cores is about 10,000 feet. Hmm. 10,000 feet at five and a half feet per year is only about 1,824 years worth. Now, of course, the deeper you go, the harder the ice is compacted because, and the thinner the layers because of all the weight on top. So it's safe to say that that ice accumulation is less than 4,400 years old, not 100,000 years old. So wow. we see over and over and over these old earth ideas fall through. And that's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is all these evidences that show the earth is young. It's not old. Amen. And so what does this mean for secular secular science, then, if the Earth is, in fact, young? Well, I think it, it, it proves that secular, secular science has a consistency over the centuries. In, ni- in the uh, 18th century, 90% of what they thought was true in the 18th century, by the 19th century, 90% of that had been proven wrong. 90%. In the 19th century, 90% of what they thought was true. A hundred years later, 90% of it was not true. They, they found out they were wrong on that. So it proves that science has a long history of being wrong, and they're still wrong today on the age of the earth. They need to have an absolute authority. When the creator of the universe tells you something, I'm going to take his word for it. So I take Jesus' words when Jesus said, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? I take that as truth. I believe that the creation of Adam and Eve really was the beginning. And we can take God's word for what it says, and we can base our entire life on that verse, or excuse me, on that word. And it's, it's not just about the age of the earth. 
You can base your feelings and your emotions and your, your eternal security can all be based on the truth of God's Word. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We've all done what's wrong. Okay, podcast listener, if you think I'm crazy here, let's just take a little quiz, okay? Stop stocking stock the shelf just for a second and raise your hand with me if this is true. Have you ever told a lie? Raise your hand right there while you're stocking the shelf if you if you told a lie. I don't care how funny you look on the airplane, just raise your hand. The stewardess will ask you what's going on. <laughs> just say, oh, I'm just taking a quiz here. Okay, take the quiz. Yeah, we've all told a lie. <clears throat> what does that make us? Makes us liars. Yeah. Okay, try this one. Have you ever taken something that doesn't belong to you? You ever stolen anything? Yeah, get your hand up. Otherwise, you're a liar, okay? You can put your hand up on the last one. So if you've taken something that doesn't belong to you, you're called a thief. Have you ever disobeyed your parents? Used God's name in vain? Looked at somebody with lust in your heart? See, we've broken God's perfect laws, the Ten Commandments. Jesus even took the commandments further. He said, it's not just don't commit adultery, it's don't look with lust. Who of us can say that we're innocent of breaking God's perfect law? So the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know that. We know we're all sinners, even though man will try to proclaim his own goodness and will try to think we're doing good. We're not good compared to God's standards. And he is the one who's going to be judging us. He's the one who's got the standards. So we're going to be punished. We've got a problem here. We haven't met God's expectations. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We haven't measured up to the goodness of God. Therefore, we deserve punishment. The question is, what does the Bible say the punishment is for not measuring up to God's standard? The Bible says the punishment for sin is death. The Bible says that every person that has sinned is going to die. That's the result. So the evidence of your sin will be your death. Ten out of ten people are going to die. I'm going to try. I'm going to die one day. I, I just I can guarantee that's going to happen. I'm going to try to make that the last thing I ever do. But it is going to happen. <laughs> now when I die, I'm going to stand before God and He's going to judge me, and I'm going to be found guilty just like you of breaking His perfect law, the Ten Commandments. Now, mm -hmm. if it bothers you that you're going to be found guilty before God, and you need to understand what the Bible says the penalty of that is, because you're guilty, because you've sinned, the penalty is death. And it's not just die and you're in the grave and you're rot and you don't, you don't exist anymore. The Bible says the penalty is hell. It's a lake of fire. Now, if that concerns you, I got some great news. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect life, the life that you and I could not live. Then he died the death of the cross, the death that you and I should die. And then he, he was buried, and he experienced hell. And then three days later, the Bible says he rose from the dead, he conquered death, conquered the grave, took the keys of, <clears throat> of hell from Satan and said, I have overcome the grave, and I want to give you this gift as well. And anybody who trusts in Christ, in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, can be saved. And if that's not something you've done, you need to consider doing that today. This is more important than stocking the shelves. It's your eternal future, your eternal security. Where are you going to go when you die? And if you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, oh, it's not good news. It's bad news. So the good news is ah, Jesus Christ died for the penalty of sin. If you're willing to do the ABC, accept what he's done, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, you too, can experience salvation. You can be 
saved. And that, that really is what it's all about. It's about the ABCs of salvation. It's about accepting or admitting that you're a sinner, believing on Jesus Christ, and then calling upon the name of the Lord, repenting and trusting, uh, and uh, repent of trusting anything other than Christ alone for your salvation. Your good works can't get you to heaven. Your good works aren't going to do anything. Going to church doesn't do it. You need to repent of trusting in anything but Christ alone for salvation, and that's really what it comes down to. Mm. Oh, yeah. Amen. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. No. We're not even guaranteed the rest of today. Um, it, it, every breath we take is a gift from God. And, um, yeah, if anybody is listening and has not made that decision, has not called upon the Lord Jesus Christ and and asked for forgiveness and believed upon him and what he did on that cross, taking the punishment that, that you and I deserve upon himself, uh, today is that day. Yeah. Today is that day. Hmm. Thank you. Amen. Um, that's, amen. That's what it's all about. All of our apologetics, as you think, if you're listening to this and you're trying to do apologetics or you want to learn apologetics, if your apologetics do not point to the cross, you have failed miserably. Apologetics hmm. is the job of apologetics is to point people to the cross. And I'm engaged in it every day. I love apologetics. Uh, it's uh, a good friend, um, Elmer Towns, the co-founder of Liberty University. He said, I believe the future of evangelism is apologetics. But he said the future of evangelism is apologetics. The whole point of evangelism is to bring people to the cross. But there's a lot of hurdles that people have in their mind now to get there because of the education, because of the culture today, because of the postmodern worldview. So yep. just reemphasize, if you're not pointing people to the cross with your apologetics, you're doing it wrong. Amen. Amen. So uh, tell me about creation today. Like what, what kind of new things are you guys working on right now? Oh man, I'm thrilled. We've got, let me just tell you about a couple things we got going on. If your listeners want to learn more, creationtoday.org, of course, is our website where we uh, list everything, but we started a movie project several years ago, uh, and it really got birthed out of a series that we were doing called Creation Minute. You can see those at creationminute.com. Little 60-second segments with incredible graphics illustrating yeah. a truth about creation. And so we started doing these, and, and then the guy that was helping me do those, he said, hey, Eric, nobody has ever created the creation of the world so that instead of just reading in the beginning God, you can actually watch in the beginning God. I said, dude, that would be so cool. He said, let's do it. I said, how much is that going to take? How much, is, how much work? He said, a lot. I said, well, if you're doing it, let's go for it. So four and a half years ago, <laughs> We started on a project called the Genesis 3D Movie. You can look at it at genesismovie.com. We're raising support and finishing the film by next year. And I'm telling you, it's been four and a half grueling years, and we got 12 months left. But I could not be more excited about this project. It is going to be huge. Our goal is to go to theaters with this and allow people to experience, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and overcome a lot of these hurdles, a lot of these obstacles that they face from the culture today. So it's a, definitely an apologetic film. And let me tell you, when it points to the cross in 3D, it is powerful. It is really going to be an incredible film. So I've got the Genesis movie going on, which I'm really excited about. Would love you to check that out. We also, also launched the Creation Network. And this is really exciting for me. Creationnetwork.org is a combination of several different websites. Let me tell you, my, one of my, well, I like them all. Okay, one of my favorites, 
I went to the guys one day and I said, hey, guys, anytime I'm searching for an answer to a question about creation or evolution or apologetics or the Bible, if I don't know and I want to find out what other people say, I'm going to like five or six different websites and trying to see what their website says about it. I said, can you build a search engine for me that searches all the websites that I want to search in one search engine? They came back a few minutes later and they said, yeah, we can do that. I said, man, let's make it happen. So we actually made it happen, and now we've made that available to everybody. So we're paying for it. You get to use it for free. Searchcreation.org. Searchcreation.org. And any question on creation, evolution, science, or the Bible, I guarantee you an incredible answer because now we are searching the top 19 apologetic websites in the world, and I guarantee you great answers from searchcreation.org. It's just really phenomenal. I love using that search engine. Then another uh, part of the Creation Network is visitcreation.org. Visit Creation lists all the places here in the United States of America and in other countries around the world that you can go and get a creation education. In other words, they, it's either a museum or they offer a creation tour of a secular place, but it's a place you can go on vacation and learn from the Christian worldview and not get the evolution in the millions of years. And I was blown away because we now have over 80 locations right here in America where you can go and learn about creation, learn the Christian worldview. So visitcreation.org is a phenomenal resource. I highly encourage you to check that out. Uh, and then we got creationevents.org. That's another part of that network where instead of just listing my events and where I'm going to travel and speak, I said, hey, guys, let's partner with other creation ministries and let's list their events as well. So we kind of become the hub or the hotspot to find out what's going on in creation. So creationevents.org is where you go, and you'll see, you'll, see, you'll see events all over the country. And they're all done by creationists that love God, that want to use the creation message to point to the cross. And that's what it's all about. So those are just a couple of the, the websites and things we got going on that I'm really excited about. Oh, wow. And so I'm looking at this right now, um, the, the uh, creationevents.org. Uh, I can sign up, do an email sign-up. And I'm assuming then that it will – I'll get emails yep. warning me about different people that are going to be speaking in my area. You got it, man. Oh, man, that is great. That's, that's excellent. Yeah, I think huh? it's, a, it's, a, it's a, just a service. I just realized, look, we're not the biggest creation ministry out there. We're not the best apologetic ministry. Well, okay, we, we might be the best, but uh, <laughs> we're, we know we're not the best. There's incredible guys out there, and I went, you know what? How can we become a servant to everybody rather than just a servant to ourselves? And so this is our way of just trying to serve the, the, the community at large, and uh, just, uh, I, it's just uh, to me, it's servant leadership. It's what Jesus modeled, and it's what I think we need to do. Amen. Amen. Wow. Uh, Eric Hoven, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It has been an honor. It's been a pleasure. A very informative. Um, I hope we can do this again. Absolutely, bro. I look forward to it, man. Thank you for giving me the privilege of, of having time with your listeners. And, uh, man, praise God. I'll just throw a little shout-out to all the listeners out there. You probably downloaded this podcast for free. Why don't you go and give Michael five bucks? He's got a full-time job, but this costs money. Go throw him five bucks. If all of you did that, he could he could get some even better recording equipment and uh, and make an even bigger difference in eternity. So why don't you hook Michael up with uh, some kind of little gift today? Make that happen, and uh, I'll I'll send you a gift too, Michael, just to uh, to keep you going, man. 
Actually, I, I uh, oh, I got to change my website still, but I actually stopped accepting accepting donations. You got to be kidding! I'm trying to hook you I'm, up, man. I know I'm doing this as a labor of love. Wow. Uh, I'm doing this totally out of my own pocket, and I don't want anything but prayers. Uh, and and I just I just want to do God's work, and I think. I have a treasure waiting for me somewhere else. Amen to that. Well, I know the gospel is free. The pipeline to deliver it is not. So if you were going to give to Michael, then uh, creationtoday.org, we will use that. All right, never mind. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) You know what? You guys are doing some amazing stuff, and uh, you're, you're using technology and effects and things with your ministry that uh, it really does take a lot of money. I'm running off a shoestring budget here, and <laughs> and I'm doing just fine. Uh, but you know, I'm not producing the quality of content that you guys uh, are, and having the reach that you guys have. So, amen. Uh, flipping that around, friends, if you want to help a ministry out that's really getting the gospel out there, and you heard Eric today, you heard his heart, you heard him telling us the gospel. Uh, he's out there, he's in the trenches, and he is doing this stuff day in, day out. This is his full-time job. This is what he does. And so, yeah, go to creationtoday.org, and uh, that would be the place to to uh, sow some money in. And then, yes, we both can use your prayers. Uh, Amen to that. Wow. All right, guys, that's it. That's Eric Hoven. Again, the website, creationtoday.org. I really can't emphasize enough just how good his video podcast is. You really got to check it out. Honestly, guys, it's probably one of the best out there on the topic of creation and evolution. Also, uh, his creation minutes that he talked about, uh, those are pretty, pretty amazing to watch as well. You think, you know, what am I really going to get out of a minute or two to three minute long uh, video? Well, no, they're pretty packed. They get a lot into that short little amount of time. It's good stuff. So, yeah, that's Eric Hoven, creationtoday.org. Thanks, guys, for listening. I love you guys, and we'll see you next week.